Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. On this episode, he's just a simple tanner and the inventor of dialectical materialism. We read the 1869 book, The Nature of Human Brain Work, by the first working class Marxist philosopher, Joseph Dietzkin. Everybody get your e-meter out. Let's do this shit. We're going to get into the immortal science of dialectical materialism. Yeah, we're getting getting some brain, some brain work, <laughs> <laughs> some big brain work. Getting some brain. We read Joseph Dietzkin's, uh, what is it, nineteen six uh, nineteen. Sorry, we were just talking about the Mansons, so I got the sixties in my head. Should we become a murder podcast instead? Should we? I mean, there's more money in it for sure. The political economy of murder, you know. I mean, do we want money? Is the answer to that question. To the extent that we don't, then no. Um, <laughs> the answer to this question, like all questions, any attempt to formulate that question will inevitably leave out how similar true is from false. So we shouldn't not become a murder podcast, Grant. How about that? This is dialectics. This is the dialectical academy. Yeah, we solved it. This shit works. Well, I, I think Dietzkin is right that even if we shouldn't become a murder podcast, uh-huh. that that idea in our heads is a true falsity. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so that it is a material thing <laughs> that we falsely believe that we, we should be a murder podcast. You know, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, if you'll excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> There's some 14-year-old who thinks we're so cool. Do we do drugs, man? Yeah, well, they're wrong. <laughs> so yeah, the full title is The Nature of Human Brain Work, A Renewed Critique of Pure and Practical Reason by a Manual Worker. Yeah, Dietzkin was a tanner most of his life. I love that this like really engages mostly with Kant rather than Hegel. I think that's a really interesting turn. I don't know. He seems to grasp that there's like a gauntlet thrown down between Kant and Hegel. He's one of the originators of, perhaps, this tendency of, like, conflating Kant with a sort of, like, hard platonic ideal that there is a realm of, like, metaphysical existence or something, rather than there being something in, like, consciousness and cognition Mm. that structures the world. That's maybe something that's, like, probably the best Hegelians pick up on this and... I feel like it's maybe missing from here, even though he is so knocking on the door the whole time, being like, look, if we could crack psychology, we can crack how, like, brains perceive things. Then maybe we can start perceiving, like, and building up for the first time the kind of, like, big deal horizons that science wanted to do in culture or morality. And really the the ability to reach a materialist worldview isn't so much about, of course, you would say this, but the historical preconditions for this idea of materialism were really only coming into being in this 
kind of period in the 19th century, even though it reiterates and reforms earlier, earlier work. So it makes sense that you would have, and this is really what a lot of people see as the significance of this work, even though they had some disagreements about exactly how it goes, a parallel development to Marx's of materialist philosophy influenced by Feuerbach. Yeah, I guess that's what's worth like pointing out, like right off the bat, that like Marx and, and I don't know, especially Engels, like politically at least, you know, and then of course methodologically, there's like a lot of disagreement going on here maybe, but these are the people trying to spell out you know, in for Engels, it's materialist dialectics. For Marx, it's the, you know he calls it the dialectical method. Yeah, and and that's interesting that you mentioned politically because I think for Dietzkin, like even though I don't think when he says this, he really means something like the socialist states that we got of the twentieth century. But he has that kind of looseness in referring to future socialist administration as a socialist state. Even you know, mm-hmm. especially after after in his later works, you know that that Marx and Engels had a little bit more ambivalence on. You know, sometimes they would talk about it that way. Right. Sometimes they would talk about it as a kind of immediate uh, transcendence of the state. Whereas in Goethe, for example, you know, Marx has both some of his most anti-state things, and then he's <laughs> he's also just kind of flippant about like I, you can call it a state. You know, you cannot call it a state, whatever. Like, whereas Dietzkin is like, all right, we're we're going to create this this socialist state in the future. But but I also don't think he, by that he means sort of what history borne out on that either. Oh, and it's it's probably worth mentioning that like by the end of his life, Dietzkin was sort of identifying with and like lobbying basically for anarchism to be included as part of like socialism. He wanted social democracy in the United States to defend the Haymarket martyrs, so much so that he ended up buried next to them in Chicago. Right. He, he says, for my part, I lay little stress on the distinction whether a man is an anarchist or a socialist, because it seems to me that too much weight is attributed to this difference. Yeah, this guy is demonstrably like coming from a different direction than Marx exactly. But what I like about him, especially in in these works, and like this isn't actually like a feature of his thought generally. Generally, he's pretty political and politically engaged in talking about social democracy. But in this, he's laying this out as a philosophical worldview. This would become the worldview of a great many people. And, you know, I mean, is to some degree today. It's notable that for the kind of philosophy that's being done, he ends up radically universalistic in a way that is mostly hostile to formalization in terms of studying humanity. Like, he accepts, like, the kind of physics going on at the time and its, you know, claims to lawfulness to a degree. But, like, in terms of human life and, like, empirical life, he's a he thinks of himself as a radical empiricist. I mean, I don't know if he'd say it like that, but he's all about the sense impression that this, like everything needs to be built from the sense impression. It's, it's a lot of critiques of people that like are caught up in something else besides the information that we get from our senses and matter. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter if, if anything is like real or authentic. It's all just like, you know, phenomena that happen basically. And like that, yeah, consciousness basically just engages with what he calls objects. Um, and it's around objects that any kind of like thought is oriented. So to, you know, to try and like find like this kind of like 
sub pure like thinking in itself or whatever subjectivity outside of that is basically meaningless like everything is oriented around some kind of object he basically like squares the circle in the big bong rip way of being so relativistic that he can build back up to the potential for a true universal like there's something like seductive about that way of doing things i mean you see a lot of influences from like non-western sources in this like maybe not explicitly, but like conceptually, this reads like sort of like a contrarian attack on a lot of like established Western like canon metaphysics. Hmm. There is like a kind of like political underbelly to it, but I don't think it like defines everything about it. In fact, I was kind of surprised that this ends up going pretty hard on right and wrong in terms of modes of production that like Marx will sometimes get into. But Dietzkin leans into this. You mentioned that this is a less political work than a lot of other Dietzkin texts. It's less explicitly, yeah. You do see, though, in some of his other work, even the later stuff, so 1876, he kind of copies Marx where, you know, Marx once says something along the lines of, you know, we need to change religious and political understanding to self-conscious human understanding. A text called... Social democratic philosophy. He says that Marx was the first to recognize that human welfare does not depend on the enlightened statesman, but on the productivity of labor. He recognized, and this is the bedrock of social science, that human salvation depends on material work and not on spiritualist moonshine. Henceforward, we look for salvation not to religious, political, and judicial enlightenment, but we see it organically growing out of the development of social economy. The way he phrases that, you know, throughout the rest of the paragraph, it's very productive forces, advance of history oriented as well. And uh, he also says that what distinguishes communism from all other political theories that's interesting. From all political theories, communistic socialism is distinguished by its principle that the people can only be free when they free themselves from poverty, when their struggle for freedom is fought out on the social, i.e. on the economic field. I thought that was interesting as well. There's a couple of, of ideas that are just sort of different from the way things get hardened into not just like Stalin's dialectical materialism, but like Engels' is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People that consider themselves Marxists like uh, Panacuk that didn't go the Leninist route and ended up being like orthodox left communism. Like a lot of them, you know, took on this project of like a dialectical materialist worldview just as much as any leninist it sounded like pancakes was a little ambivalent about him in some of this introduction but not all of it it's not just heaping praise that's all on the marxist internet archive um version of the nature of human brain work there is a pancakes introduction oh hell yeah see i should have just looked it up on the internet what, did you go to the library, Lexington? <laughs> uh, what are you kidding? I, I ordered a hardcover edition from Bezos Mart. That's dedication. How much did that cost? It was very cheap. Good, good. You actually got a physical copy. It has like Karl Marx and like a poll quote on the front. Like, here is our philosopher. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's funny that, that they're using the here is our philosopher. That's from something Marx said after 
the publication of Capital, he really kind of comes around on him. But you can see on the wiki that on his first reading of the text we're working with, Marx forwards a copy to Engels and remarks, My opinion is that J. Dietzian would do better to condense all his ideas into two printer sheets and have them published under his own name as a tanner. If he publishes them in the size he's proposing, he will discredit himself with his lack of dialectical development and his way of going round in circles. But did either of you feel like this like kind of went around in circles? Uh, this felt like Marx's time cube. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are parts that he seems to repeat himself. There is some repetition. I I thought it was valuable to have in the length we have it. You know, to just see it kind of get really borne out, and even though it's a bit repetitive, but I, I see where Marx is coming from on that. I'm just happy to hear him say that because you know that could function as a critique of the entire dialectical writing tradition. You know, that's right. That, that yeah. He's known for, you know, and that he is exemplary of. He is the example, even more than Hegel, that people take for like dialectical philosophy and the way Marx tries to make dialectics materialist. I guess one of the things that I wanted to like point to throughout the book, the only time that like law is spoken of like positively in regards to like humanity is the law of consciousness. Virtually everything else here is sort of rebuffing the idea of laws of consciousness and laws of perception the object thing seems like it's kind of like the basis you know of like his entire philosophy engaging with like these mental constructions you know of like being fixated on the particular thing like that's how all of consciousness works you know like that in itself is something that like contemporary philosophers of consciousness like will stress a lot that like if you can glean anything from like neuroscience consciousness is consciousness of something like you have to have a reference for consciousness. The consciousness has to recognize something else. Now, for Hegelians, this has a deeper meaning in that for Hegelians, it's not possible to really have self-consciousness without being seen in the eyes of another self-consciousness. And you know what I mean? Like mm. that like there has to be another real person structured like you in like in some basic reflexive way where it can see itself. Right. Like well, yeah, because otherwise there's no language. In order for you to develop, right? But, okay, that makes sense psychologically. And what's really interesting here is that so much of the critical theory tradition and the Stalinist, like Leninist tradition, when they beef over dialectical materialism versus, you know, Marxist Hegelianism and, and like Western Marxism, over how to treat nature and whether the ultimate dialectical site is it in the mind? Is it like something about seeing and perception and psychology? Or is it, you know, is nature itself dialectical? Which is mm. a conception that comes more from Marx and Engels, it seems, than from this text. This text is very focused on this empiricist concept of mind, that yeah. like reason itself doesn't exist without sense perception. And sense perception builds reason the way it is phrased it seems like it would not exist otherwise like the notion of cognition and cognitive machinery in the brain is not really present here to vulgarize it a bit it's almost just this idea of okay you need an object in the real world to have thoughts because you need something to think about right there needs to be a reality for ideas to exist you take in like some kind of sensory input and then you generalize 
and you you know see the unity and like similarities between different sense perceptions and from there you begin to sort that information and you begin to develop consciousness i guess is the idea right and there's this whole big universe that is actually one thing that we then cut up into abstractions and stuff i find all the hegelian stuff like about the oneness of the universe kind of funny like i I actually think it has a good point but it almost makes me want to like go do some yoga and clear my chakras Mm -hmm. with no irony so much of Dietzkin seems like it is, you know, drawing from that stuff. I know that there is a wave of interest in Indian philosophy in particular, but Asian philosophy more generally around, you know, Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher and like other intellectuals. I don't know how much of that was like Dietzkin was directly interested in or inspired by, or if it was just stuff that was floating around, but like the insistence that the universe is made of the same thing as the self. That's from the Vedic texts and like the Hindu tradition. It's harped on very strongly that Atman is Brahman, that these things are one substance. That is such an important fundamental thing. I mean, yeah. And when you think about it, like what is separating me from the so-called external world? You certainly have your own private subjective perceptions, but... There's such an obvious extended cognition, social, cultural component of all of your thoughts and things of that nature that it's it's hard to draw that dividing line in a rigid, like ontological kind of way. You know, if, if you deny some of these conclusions, like it's like if things have an innate actual individual existence, then, you know, what makes you a human being rather than a colony of cells? You know, it's, it, there's obviously different levels of abstraction and emergent phenomenon uh, going on. The notion of emergence is more developed in our regular ass scientific discourse than it was back then. Right. There's an implication of it when people are explaining dialectics and stuff. They'll tell you something along the lines of, you know, you look at a knife, right? And you can break that up into its blade or its handle or what have you. I don't actually know it off the top of my head, but do either you know what I'm talking about? I feel like every time I read an introduction to dialectics, people are telling me about a knife blade and a knife handle. And it's also from like Buddhist philosophy when you're looking for essence and they're trying to prove that there's no such thing as essence. There's a similar like story in the Greek mythos about the ship of Theseus. Every part in the ship is replaced. Is it the same ship? That's one that really uh, was a head scratcher for me in high school. Spent a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> I feel like that knife thing would be useful if you were like a traveling knife salesman in like the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> you go on like this dialogue thing, like, oh, far out, man. How much of the knives? I think that's that's a good idea. You could still get away with that in like the Bay Area, probably. That would slay in the Bay Area. I mean, jeez. So there's this notion that appears in other texts. I'm not sure if I've seen it in Marx before, but I know other Marxists appeal to dialectics. And it's many-sidedness versus the one-sidedness that you get in bourgeois thought or in other kinds of thought. This is a language that comes from the Jainist dissidents to the like main like Vedic traditions in India. Radical, nonviolent philosophy to the point where they don't want to kill like anything. It's an especially self-denying and other-preserving philosophy. But their epistemology appeals to this notion of many-sidedness that you see in dialectics and that pluralistic and democratic 
notion to this almost inherently that like everybody's bringing something to the table. The old parable of the blind people and the elephant all touching different parts of the elephant and describing it, I think comes from the Jainist tradition. Like, I don't know. I always thought that this sort of clashed with the kind of Marxism that was a partisan theory for the proletariat. You know what I mean? Like that having this like big bong rip sort of epistemology was sort of a strange fit for the kind of, you know, combat philosophy that people expect out of Marxism. And that even in the critical theory tradition, you know, there's a sense that the proletariat has like a radical subjectivity in itself. And it's, you know, it's not some big bong rip, you know, integral like group hug epistemology with something more combative. And like, you know, I think it's pretty interesting that this has this more maybe like pluralistic and democratic element. Yeah, it feels very open, like kind of open ended where it's like, you know. Human beings, we're finite creatures, you know, our understanding will be limited, but there'll be this kind of process by which we can, like, you know, progressively, like, develop consciousness and human understanding, you know. Before we, like, started recording, I kind of read the uh, Plekhanov piece on justdownmarxist.org because it's one of the other things that comes up when you search for Joseph Dieskin. It's just using the way it's written because it's classic, like, Russian socialist writing where it's everything is very combative, you know. And, like, he spends, like, a good deal of the, like, essay, like, kind of heaping abuse on Joseph Dietzchen. But then at the end, he's like, actually, he's a pretty good guy. And, like, he has, he has some good <laughs> things to say. Uh, but, you know, you know, people are putting him up higher than he should be. So, yeah. <laughs> but there's even one part where he basically pokes at Dietzchen for being autodidact. And he goes, uh, wow. to put the matter bluntly, Joseph Dietzchen had only a vague idea of materialism. He says of himself, it's a quote within a quote, as a rule, I acquaint myself with philosophical works of the second and third order merely by glancing over the preface, the introduction, and perhaps the first chapter. Then I am approximately informed as to what I may expect further on. That's smart. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like Dietzchen knows how to get through grad school or whatever. <laughs> he sounds like a rather practical person. Yeah, I actually think that, that it is interesting that Dietzchen worked so long as a, as a tanner and that he's really this source for... Uh, Radical philosophy, if you want to call it that. It's not a proletarian partisan philosophy. And this is, you know, the first working class dialectical materialist. I saw a bong rip like thought, like maybe that's because like socially, like he doesn't come out of like the academy. So he doesn't have to like distinguish himself in some way. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, he can just kind of be like, hey, man, like it's all like, it's all pretty good, right? <laughs> you know, he doesn't have to like stake out like some position of like cultural capital for himself by having like the novel. Wow. Although he does think what he's discovered is kind of novel, but more on a like, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a working man, Tanner, and uh, I got a few thoughts here about nature of uh, materialism and human consciousness, you know? Yeah, I've actually got two quotes from his letter to Karl Marx, actually. I don't know if you saw that in the index of his works. Is it before this? Because this is from... Is it 67? 1867. First, he praises contribution to the critique of political economy... I've been waiting the continuation with much impatience. Well, good luck with that with Marx's work ethic. But uh, you expressed for the first time in clear, irresistible scientific form what will from now on be the conscious tendency of scientific development, the subordination to human consciousness of the previously blind natural force of the social process of production. It is your immortal achievement 
most honored sir, to have provided the understanding of this tendency, to have assisted the realization that our production process proceeds unguided. And then he goes on to say, and this goes to the Tanner thing, the philosophy of Emmanuel worker is clearer than the average of our present-day philosophy professors. I would value your approval higher than if some learned academy wished to appoint me as its member. I close with the assurance once again that I sympathize from the bottom of my heart with your efforts, which have a significance far beyond our time. Social development, the struggle for the rule of the working class, interests me more deeply than my own personal affairs. And I think it's really interesting that this guy actually has a view of social development where he's willing to just go social development, comma, the struggle for the rule of the working class, like just to equate those things in a very, in a very direct way. I mean, he made the right call even in saying to Marx back in 1867, like, bro, you're going to be a legend, bro. You can be a legend, bro. <laughs> yeah. The work you're doing, you know, that, that's, um, that might be important for a little bit. It's like, Wow, you don't say. I mean, yeah, you certainly saw more than a lot of people at the time because when they published Capital, like they expected that to be their meal ticket, you know? Yeah, or just yeah. finding I pay the bills, and it really didn't. No, <laughs> no, Marx was not an influencer. No, <laughs> I think he had a lot of charisma within the burgeoning socialist movement, and I think people thought the strength of his arguments was really powerful. But uh, Marx was not a, a, an influencer by any means. Yeah, he had a lot of followers, but not like a fat, you know, Patreon or OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The plug it off thing, like, sketched me out about it a little bit was that he does kind of point out how, like, and Deathson kind of admits that this, this might well happen, but he's kind of basically treading over, already trod over territory. You know, like he's basically just revisiting stuff or finding solutions that pretty much already solved somewhere else in like the philosophical canon. Yeah, you know, Plaganov kind of beats him over the head with Hegel and is like, actually, just read just read Hegel's logic. Like it's better than this, you know. Um, <laughs> but right, right. And I, I don't really have the training to answer that question. You know what I mean? In some ways, reading this did kind of remind me of like you know like Sam Harris stuff, where it's like I got the moral landscape. I feel like I figured it all out. But really, it's just like a regurgitation of utilitarianism or something, you know? So how much is this guy just regurgitating other stuff? How much should he engage with the canon, you know? I think a lot of the significance is pooling some things together. It's synthetic. It's systematizing. It's funny because it's systematizing in a way that is anti-formal for the most part. And that is something that would change with Engels. Engels is more comfortable with, you know, stating things in terms of laws. Yeah, Engels is a, as as a thinker is always willing to just kind of. I actually admire this about Engels too, in that I'm glad we have both Marx and Engels, right? Because you have Marx for this kind of open ended thing. When a prediction from Marx is wrong, there's something in Marx that you can kind of double back to and be like, I actually have explanatory power from a Marx himself for why this prediction was wrong. Engels is really willing to just like say like about a certain given thing, like this is what's going to happen, you know, and that leaves him open to being falsified. That leaves him open to being wrong a lot more of the time. You know, he's a little less careful. So he can get some things wrong. But then at the same time, that boldness as a thinker, I mean, allows him to say things that are a little more provocative, a little more interesting at times. It's a gift and a curse. We need like better Engleses more so than we need like new Marxes. There's a lot of things that people have thought about before that could use maybe a little more legs and a little more like sketching out and trying to make these good ideas from history like happen <laughs> instead of like trying to be the new great genius or something. That's not as celebrated in history. 
Like, there are fewer statues of angles than of marks. But it needs to happen in order for things to, like, be operationalized. I appreciate angles for doing that, even though, like, yeah, anyone who's ever had a brush at an academic Marxist knows, oh, marks and angles. And angles says stuff and gets it wrong instead of sprinkling a little of the old dialectic on it. So he's right either way that Marx tends to do. I think Engels, the vulgarizer, is overstated. But, you know, we needed some vulgarizers out here, you know? Like, let's just get the thought. Let's make some conclusions. Yeah. What if Marx just put capital on a broad sheet, you know, under his real name, instead of, you know, making a big fucking book that's like a third word problems in non-decimal shillings? Should the cover of this episode be the... uh... Meme of that guy sprinkling stuff, and it's like the dialectic. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I haven't seen that. I, I was thinking like the galaxy brain. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> galaxy brain. It's a little old, but it's so fitting. <laughs> Some of the most interesting parts of the book really, really resonate with Buddhist philosophy in terms of like the difference between right and wrong being one of quantity, not quality. Which is to say that, you know, there's no like essential bold difference, that it's relative in an important sense, that the difference between true and false also kind of obeys this behavior and goes deeply into this in like a systematic way with a bunch of different binaries. Even at some point, he has an awkward example about there being like, if science had figured out that there were five races, like for sure. But then, you know, we found an individual that didn't fit into these types. He actually says something, you know, good about it is that, you know, clearly the types are the problem, not the person. Yeah, you have to modify your concepts because clearly it doesn't have the explanatory power of what the world is that you thought because there's new yeah. information. I thought that that was pretty interesting considering the way that, like, the science of sex has gone. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, there's something freaky deaky dialectical about that as like a naturalist that you can take on without being like science is fake sex is fake man you could do dialectical trans science (laughs) there's definitely some pre-materialist dialectical stuff that can rationalize a trans perspective i i think some good hegel that's (laughs) proto-trans ideology or maybe ideology isn't even the right word for it (laughs) maybe (laughs) considering i don't think it's propping up the state anyway the damn femme state. Yeah, everybody knows the government would fall instantly if I couldn't get my hormones. <laughs> everybody knows that. I, I don't know. I actually kind of thought the stuff on morality and practical reason was some of the more interesting stuff in the book. The first few chapters were a little time cube. I got lost in a diamat time cube. The OG diamat time cube. Like, I just want to stress, this is the birth of so much terrible runaround writing, incredibly abstracted, bong-rippy philosophy that glosses a lot of stuff and jams it together. Like, Lexi, are you saying that Earth doesn't have four-corner continuous day? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me? In 1884, Meridian Time personnel met in Washington to change Earth time. First word said was that only one day could be used on Earth to not change the one-day marshmallow. So they applied the one day and ignored the other three days. This is a major lie. Has so much boring feed from its wrong. No man on Earth has no belly button. It proves every believer on Earth a liar. Goddamn type cube. Your dirty, lying teachers use only the midnight to midnight one day, ignoring the other three days. Thank you. 
you're welcome. Yeah, that, that's from uh, page 63, of course, uh, the practice of reason and physical science. No, actually, uh, the force and matter section I found kind of interesting. Wait, this actually does sound dialectical. Life is pulsing opposite mirror pairs. <laughs> Death is oneness of godism. One does not exist except in death's day. Okay, never mind. I, I'm going to stop <laughs> quoting Time Cube. Go on. You can't stop quoting Time Cube. All is Time Cube. Time Cube is all. Well, um, it was saying something about the unity of opposites, so I had to chuck that in there. That is a legal formulation that Dietzkin might have even objected to. But I'd be surprised if Engels wasn't thinking about the discussion that happened here or in more uh, other of Dietzkin's works when writing that law, you know, like it's a legal expression of this concept of there not being a qualitative difference, only quantitative difference actually covers two of the laws of dialectics, which is the unity of opposites, because both of the opposites are just, you know, quantitative steps away and not qualitatively different, truly. But then, of course, there's the generation of quality from quantity, which I guess is a better way of thinking about what people are trying to say here is that this is where it gets interesting when you're talking about nature or cognition, but just on the level of cognition, the differences between something being truly one way or truly something else like, ah, fuck, I'm just I'm too high on time cube. This is too fucking much. I'm crushed by the time cube. <laughs> I think for the social media promotion of this episode, like, I should just not even describe what goes on. Just copy-paste chunks of time, <laughs> time writing and just – maybe people will click on that more. If yeah. It's just like – not one of the Jewish banker parts though. I think there's – Oh my god. Is there Jewish banker parts of time cube? I, I'm sorry. I might be slandering Gene Ray. It's been Are a few slandering years. slandering the time cube? Like he has some good interviews too. Like, really? Like if you want to see the time cube guy like really in full form, there's this YouTube video. If you just look up time cube Gene Ray interview and it's with the tech TV and it's like – it's pretty damn good. This has six sides. A cube has six sides. You say there's four separate days. That doesn't make sense. How can you call a top and bottom a side? You call the top of your bedroom uh -huh. and bottom of your four sides? That's dumb. That, that makes a lot of sense. Now, everything, the solar system has a top and bottom, front and back and two sides. Earth has a top and bottom, front and back and two sides. The human has a top and bottom, front and back and two sides. Now, the human head has four corners, nose, two ears, and a back corner. But it only has a one-corner face. It's only one-fourth of who they think they are, one corner. But they go around the four corners in a lifetime, the baby, the child, the parent, and the grandparent. Uh -huh. We don't recognize human metamorphosis. It's awesome. I forgot about this. Thank you, Lexi. Like, this, this used to be one of my favorite, like, internet <laughs> bullshit things. No problem. <laughs> I'm glad I could spread the, the cosmic cube. I never read Time Cube, but I just, I know of it. Force and matter separated from one another are for me nothing but thoughts, fantasies. Wait, what am I reading? Oh, <laughs> I'm quoting something that Dietzkin is quoting. It's not fair. I mean, we're being a little deflationary here. And I'm, look, I did my time reading a lot of like bullshit pamphlets. They're trying to explain like the whole world with like A is B, B is A, you know. And like you might as well just read the Tao Te Ching and like get the like genuine article instead of dicking around with that kind of shit. But um, what I think is, you know, important about this is that it's a bit more open-ended than a lot of the diamat that you'll find. Like 
it is big and broad and has general consequences for thought and is really dealing with big picture questions, but it seems a lot less amenable to totalitarian ideology than, you know, even just the stuff coming out from angles like ended up being. It seems in a slightly different spirit. And I don't know. I don't really know what to do with dialectics sometimes. Like sometimes I wish that we could just totally leave it behind us. But I, there is a an enthusiasm for the language and the idea because of its history and its history in the philosophy of science. What if we left it behind and preserved it at the same time? Hmm. You're saying <laughs> supersede it? Yeah, it's no. like having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. yeah. The Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. We, we Alfheben dialectics itself. Yeah. I think that's really the only way forward. Just say what you mean. <laughs> That's it for this chat. If you'd like to enable our exceedingly bong-rip shenanigans in ways that cost zero dollars, show approval for our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. That is assuming we haven't been blacklisted from your podcatcher of choice. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Network and Research Collective. Check out our sister podcasts, From Alpha to Omega and General Intellect Unit, at emancipation.network, where you'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. What's this? Great Scott! We've also just launched a Star Trek podcast, hosted by yours truly and Sophia from our last Swamp Trek and joined by other guests from Emancipation Network. Our opening Proton Torpedo Salvo is a flurry of ten streams, Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, regarding the new series Star Trek Picard as each episode airs. We'll be streaming to Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch, so follow Jumpsuit Utopia on any of those platforms. From there, we'll switch formats to a bi-weekly podcast about mostly 90s Trek, really. Check that out if it tickles your fancy. Speaking of Star Trek, coming up next, we have a very special Swamp Trek in the works. In addition to a custom episode about the basic categories of historical materialism. I'm not sure which will be done first. But since I've sprinkled a bit of the old dialectic on this outro, I'll be right either way. Until next time.